following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 7. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 7 this morning. We come this morning to the conclusion of our Savior's famous Sermon on the Mount. He has pronounced the blessedness of God's new covenant people. He has taught his disciples both in that day and in our day that we and we alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We alone, he says, are God's agents of purification and God's agents of illumination in a dead and depraved and decaying and darkened world. He has claimed that he and his authoritative word are the fulfillment and completion of everything written previously in the law and in the prophets. He has called the citizens of his kingdom to a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He has warned his followers of the consequences of vilifying anger, of unmortified lust, and of flippant divorce and of thoughtless oath-making. He has instructed his disciples in the way of loving their enemies and praying for those who persecute them. He has called his people, you and I, and all generations of Christians, to a life, both public and and private that is lived before the face of God and for the honor and glory and praise of God. He has charged all of God's children not to be consumed by earthly treasures or to be anxious about physical needs, but rather he has charged us to prioritize God's kingdom and God's righteousness as we live in the awareness of God's fatherly love and fatherly care. That is what he has called us to so far in this Sermon on the Mount. And now, as we move into chapter 7, he not only warns us of several dangers that ought to sober us, but he makes some extremely precious promises that ought to encourage us. And the way he does this is that he places the encouraging promises in the midst of all the sobering warnings. And even though there are more warnings than promises in this chapter, I want you to know that the promises are enough to strengthen us and to keep us from the dangers that he mentions in this chapter. And so I want to focus your attention this morning as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount on the dangers that ought to sober us and the promises that ought to stimulate and encourage us. The the dangers that ought to sober us and the promises that ought to encourage us as God's new covenant community. And although we can technically identify more dangers, I've combined and I've condensed all of them down to three this morning. And so to give you a roadmap of where we are going this morning as we make our way through chapter 7, we're going to be making four stops in this chapter We're going to stop and consider, first of all, the danger of being hypocritically critical. And then we're going to stop again at the danger of being naively undiscerning. The third stop, we will consider the promises for being relentlessly childlike. And then fourthly, we will consider the danger of being eternally ruined. I think the older that I get, and that may sound funny to some of you who are older than me, I think the more I'm able to appreciate John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, 
And I think that's because he portrays the Christian life as a journey from one place to another, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. But the path from the one to the other is full of both blessings and dangers, encouragements and discouragements, comforts and then chaos. He presents us with blessings and dangers, dangers that lie either in other people or in places. And because this so accurately captures the essence of the Christian life, you and I cannot afford to be ignorant or in the dark concerning the dangers that threaten not only our joy here, but our eternal joy hereafter. And if the Christian life can be likened to a journey, you and I have been given a roadmap that essentially spells out and tells us what we can expect in terms of the host of dangers that lie along the way. We've been given a roadmap of warnings and promises from the city of destruction as we make our way to the celestial city, heaven, the new Jerusalem. And what's sad about all of this and what's sobering about all of this is that the dangers that threaten us the most are not the dangers that come to us from the outside, but the ones that come to us from the inside, the ones that arise from within. And that seems to be the heart of what Jesus has been getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Again and again, he keeps on bringing us back to the heart, the inner man, the inner woman. That is where sin arises, and that is where sin ultimately springs from. That's why Solomon in Proverbs 4.23 admonished his son, keep and guard your heart with all vigilance, for from the heart flows the springs of life. And one of the dangers that threatens us from the inside, as we begin here in chapter 7, verse 1, is the danger of being hypocritically critical. The danger of being hypocritically critical. Look at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, although many people take verse 1 and really this entire passage to mean that we should never care about what anyone else does in terms of their personal life and their personal choices, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. Many people will throw out Jesus' words, judge not whenever sin is pointed out whenever sin is identified, either in themselves or in their loved ones or in other people. But obviously, if we are to be effective as salt and light in this earth and in this world, sin has to be identified. How can we point people to a Savior when we don't address sin? He came to save his people from their sins. Sin has to be identified and sin has to be called out. In fact, we're going to see in just a few verses that Jesus commands and expects that we use our critical faculties to be able to identify and avoid and warn others about false prophets. So there has to be some judgment happening in our minds. The rest of the New Testament in so many places addresses how to restore one another and uh, even exercise church discipline. So this is not a call to ignore sin. Jesus isn't encouraging his disciples toward an attitude that ignores or overlooks sin or destructive behaviors. His concern here, and listen very carefully, his concern here is with a fault-finding 
condemnatory attitude in his people. An attitude that is typically coupled with a blindness to one's own faults and failures. A blindness to one's own inconsistencies. He is warning us of the danger of being hypocritically critical and hypocritically condemnatory towards others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. An easy test to determine if you're this kind of person is to ask yourself, to really ask yourself, what do I notice first in fellow believers? What's the first thing I walk away with after a conversation with people from the church? When I think of this brother or when I think of that sister, what do I tend to dwell on internally the most? Their faults, their failures, their inconsistencies, their sins. How about their lack of conformity to my standards of righteousness and where I'm at in my sanctification? I mean, really, when when you're alone or when you're talking with a close friend or your spouse in the comfort of your workplace or home, what occupies the time? Talking about the faults and failures and flaws of other Christians? I think this has a horizontal dimension to it in that harsh and hypocritically critical people tend to open the door for others to judge and criticize them. That's what he says here. Judge not that you be not judged. So there's a horizontal element to this. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, On others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The least, in other words, that can be expected for fault-finding, hypocritically critical believers is that they themselves will inevitably invite and attract equal harshness and equal criticism from others as it relates to their faults and their failures. And so, yes, there is a horizontal dimension to this in that others will start to criticize and condemn those who are the most critical and condemning. But as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's primarily and fundamentally a vertical aspect to all of this. Because those who are harsh and hypocritical in their judgments of others will be judged and dealt with severely by God. Severely by God. We see this, for example, in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Out of pity, we are told that the king released and forgave the overwhelming, insurmountable debt that one of his servants owed him. But when that same servant then turns around and refuses to show the same pity and the same mercy toward a fellow servant who owed him a relatively small amount of money, when he refuses to show that same pity, the king finds out and summons that servant and says to him, you wicked servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt All that debt because you pleaded with me. And listen, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And now listen to how Jesus concludes the parable. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, from your heart. That same principle carries over into the realm of being harsh and being critical of others because both that parable and these opening words in Matthew 7 have to do with being merciful and they have to do with being patient with fellow believers. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. 
Jesus isn't denying the reality that we will notice sin in other believers. He's not denying that. He isn't saying that we shouldn't see or address each other's faults or failures or flaws or inconsistencies or deficiencies. He is warning us of the danger of being hypocritically critical of others while we are anything but harsh on ourselves for our own inconsistencies and deficiencies. If we devoted as much time to truly, and I mean truly, addressing our lack of holiness and our lack of Christ-like righteousness as we devote to criticizing and condemning what we see or don't see in other believers, we would grow and blossom and bear so much more fruit to the glory of our Father in heaven. If we devoted as much time to our sins as we devote to the sins of others. Jesus, as God, knows our tendency even as redeemed people. He knows our tendency to be harsh and judgmental and unsympathetic and overly critical of one another. And so he warns us of this ever-present danger. Again, he's not denying that we'll ever see and notice each other's sins. He's getting to the heart of our attitude toward those sins and how to address those sins. So he's getting to the heart of our attitude and the way we address what we see in others. That's what he's getting at. As the son of a carpenter, Jesus employs language from the carpenter shop. And he asks, why do you see the speck? In the original language, it's a, a splinter, perhaps a piece of sawdust. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Now, up until this point, that's not the problem. Seeing the speck in someone's eye is not the problem. The problem is in the second half of the sentence. Look at this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice. The word means to closely consider the log. In the Greek, it's a beam that, that, that was used to, to stretch across a, a, a structure for the roof. It was a beam that was used by an army uh, to, as a battering ram to demolish city gates. Notice how he addresses actually addressing sin in other believers. Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to see the speck, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The picture is it's comical. It, it makes us laugh. You have a brother or you have a sister with a beam, literally a piece of heavy timber that was used in the construction of a roof or a battering ram for demolishing city gates sticking out of their eye. And they want to operate on someone who has a tiny splinter in their eye. That's why Jesus calls this individual a hypocrite, one of the rare, if not the only place, Jesus uses the word hypocrite with reference to one of his disciples. In this context, a hypocrite refers to someone claiming to have high moral standards but could care less to live up to those standards. And they're quick to expect others to live up to those standards. According to Jesus, the only way to address and help another brother or sister or your spouse or your believing child to see and be willing to have that speck removed from their eye is to first remove the beam from your own eye. In other words, make sure that you are as serious, if not, and even more serious about dealing with your sin and your ugliness and your inconsistencies and your deficiencies and your shortcomings before you even think about talking about or addressing what you see in another believer. That's what he's getting at here. 
It is so easy to try to get around all of this by focusing on the middle of the chapter where Jesus calls for exercising discernment when it comes to false prophets and to claim, well, Jesus calls me to be a fruit inspector. I'm not a judge. I just inspect fruit. Yes, when it comes to false prophets, but not your brothers and sisters, you will recognize them, false prophets, by their fruits. And even if you see a lack of fruit in a brother or a sister, listen to this, how you react and respond to what you see or don't see in them is a reflection of how is, is, a, is, a, is, is a reflection of your reaction and your response to how merciful and patient the God of the universe has been to you and all of your repulsive ugliness and sin. How you respond to others is a reflection of how you have responded to the God of heaven and how he has been merciful towards your depravity and your sin. If your response to the sins of other believers is to be hypocritically critical and harsh and judgmental toward them, it reveals that you have not given much thought to how infinitely merciful and gracious and kind and patient God has been and is presently being toward you even right now. Or it could be, as Second Peter 1 talks about, you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your sins. You've forgotten the sweetness, the greatness, the splendor of forgiveness. The next time you and I are tempted to focus on the sins and shortcomings of another believer, whether it's a fellow church member, a child, a co-worker, a spouse, whoever it may be, let us take to heart and remember these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 103, verse 10. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. Or another psalm, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, Lord, should mark down and hold against me every one of my iniquities, I could not stand. I could not even raise my head to you. That's the point there. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Well, Jesus now turns from our relationships to other believers to our relationships with those who are hostile to what we believe. And he warns us, secondly, as we move on to verse 6, of the danger of being naively undiscerning. So there is the danger of being hypocritically critical. Now there's the danger of being naively undiscerning. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus seems to appeal to what in that day was a widely known principle that one should not allow wild dogs. Again, when he's talking about dogs here, when the Bible talks about dogs, we're not talking about typical pet that you would have in your home today that's relatively behaved and whatever. He's talking about wild dogs, unclean animals, filthy animals that fed on scraps and dead animals. He's appealing to a commonly known principle that one should never allow wild dogs to eat the remnants of temple sacrifices. And much like sacrificial meat, pearls were costly and deserving special treatment. Which is why no one in their right mind who knows the value and costliness of pearls would ever throw those pearls before pigs. Another detestable animal in the eyes of the Jews. No animal, especially a filthy pig, can appreciate the preciousness and costliness and value of a pearl. Or pearls. And as Jesus would eventually call and commission these disciples and all disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples, he warns them of the danger of being naively undiscerning when it comes to those who are openly hostile to the truth. 
what he is saying here is that we should never attempt to force the gospel on those that we know are hostile toward the gospel. We should never force the truth of the word of God on those that we know are going to turn around and attack. That's just wisdom that he's calling us to here. Now, what this does not mean, because again, another thing, we, you know, we study biblical theology, we study systematic theology. One of the reasons it's important to study historical theology is we can see in the history of the church how our brothers and sisters from previous generations interpreted truths like these. And one of the ways that this verse has been interpreted is, is by a, a kind of hyper-Calvinism that says that we should not take the pearl of the gospel and set it before unbelievers. We, we should not evangelize the lost. Well, they're dogs. They're, 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 they're filthy. I mean, and this kind of thinking can easily creep up into the way we think. I'm not even going to bother with this person. They're not going to ever listen to the truth. Be very careful with that. Because someone took the time to share the gospel with you. Well, they're just going to turn and do this. Well, you don't know how they're going to respond. But we're talking here about those that have displayed an extremely hot adver ad adversity or hostility toward the gospel. You see this played out eventually in the Gospel of Matthew, where after Jesus calls and commissions his apostles in Matthew chapter 10, he tells them this. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. This is an example of we're not going to cast our pearls here any longer. We're not going to cast the truth here any longer. They're not going to receive us. They're not going to uh, receive this. They're openly, unashamedly hostile. We see this later on, even in the book of Acts. We see this later on in the book of Acts. Where, well, we are told, for example, um, even in the pastoral epistles, Paul recommends a similar course of action to Titus concerning divisive people within the wider congregation. He says, I want you to warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with him. We read in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, where Paul abandons his ministry to the Jews in Corinth because they were actively opposing and rejecting the gospel, and they become abusive. And so Paul turns to the Gentiles. Paul turns away, rather, from the Jews. Um, Jesus will later on in Matthew 15, regarding the Pharisees, say to his disciples, leave them alone. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. These are ways in which, these are examples of no longer casting pearls before pigs that are going to turn and trample, uh, turn and trample those, those pearls, that truth. And so he's calling us in, in the first part to... to to not be hypocritically critical of our brothers and sisters. But then it's easy to go the opposite end of the spectrum as it relates to unbelievers and, and those who are hostile to the gospel and, and, and just throw out discernment. And Jesus offers us a warning. He teaches us of the danger of being naively undiscerning as we go out in the Great Commission. Well, as we move on, we know that he's calling us to discernment. The essence of discernment, one writer says, is knowing that simple rules cannot be expected to crank out an infallible answer. Here, again, we do, we do well to try to follow the example of the teacher himself. It is eminently profitable to examine his approach to different individuals and groups. He can dismiss a group, as we've seen him do in Matthew 15, 14. He can write off a Herod, Luke 13, verse 31. He can promise judgment to whole cities, Matthew eleven twenty, And he can be patient with a group. He can offer indisputable evidence to a doubting Thomas. He can even weep over a city, Luke 19, 41. Christians dare not decide which side of Jesus' reactions they will follow most closely. They must follow both. And so we must take this and apply this wisdom as we go out fulfill the Great Commission. Well, we come thirdly now, 
to verses 7 and 11, where we go from warning to promises. And what we see thirdly here is the promises for being relentlessly childlike. The promises for being relentlessly childlike. Notice what he says in verse 7. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He's calling us to the reality of childlike faith and childlike persistence. A lot of people, and you can tell when you're just you know, perusing and making your way through commentaries throughout the week, uh, they don't know how all these verses fit together. And so a lot of people, what they resort to is they'll just say that Matthew was just collecting all kinds of data and just kind of piling it into, into, his, into his material here. But I do believe there's a flow to this. I do believe there's a there's there's a um, some, some logic behind this that that and there's reason that Jesus is saying all of this truth that I am calling you to demands that you have wisdom from the Father. I mean, isn't it amazing that in verse six he calls us to not cast this holy, precious truth before pigs and dogs that are going to turn and attack us, and we know it, and it's evident, and it's clear, to then, in the very next verse, the reality of asking from the Father and seeking the Father and knocking at the door of the Father because we need wisdom. We need discernment. We need understanding. And so he says, ask, and it will be given to you. James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He's not, he's not greedy with his wisdom. He wants to give it out. He wants to give you his wisdom. He wants to make you wise. Wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. He wants to give. He is more willing to give than we are to ask. He wants to give. And so ask and seek and knock. And what's interesting here is this is all, these are all present tense verbs What Jesus is saying here is ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Jesus is calling us to a childlike persistence that prays and continues to pray and continues to seek and continues to plead with the Father. He's calling us to a life of seeking God. For all of this, notice how this is kind of towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we can be overwhelmed with the call to purity of heart and the call to be merciful and the call to be peacemakers and the call to have a poverty of spirit. And it can be overwhelming. And yet Jesus doesn't just leave us hanging in hopelessness. He says, go to the Father and ask and seek and knock. He's calling us to a lifestyle of persistency in prayer. And he goes on and says, for everyone, verse 8, who asks, receives And the one who seeks, finds. And and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is promising that the Father will respond. It may not be in the ways you're looking for, but he will answer in one way or another. You knock, the door will be opened. You seek him and you will find him. You ask and you will receive. In his timing, according to his wisdom and his sovereignty, and his goodness. Notice verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? There are similarities between what bread looked like in that day and your, your, your stones, right? Your, your, your smooth stones. That could be one of the reasons why back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus hears that tempter's voice, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. It's almost as if they look like bread, don't they? Turn them into bread. But Jesus picks up on perhaps this similarity in what they look like and says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And he gives another situation, verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish... We'll give him a serpent. 
Again, you had a, these scaly animals that, and many believe he's referring to this kind of large, longer catfish that was, that was common in that day that kind of looked like, like, like a mixture between an eel and a snake. But he says, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your son is hungry and he asks you for a fish, you're going to turn around and give him a serpent, something that's dangerous for him. He says, which, which, which father would do that? And notice the conclusion that he reaches in verse 11. If you then, who are evil... If you then, who are fallen, if you then, who are sinful, wicked, depraved, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, in whom there's no shadow at all, who is all light and no darkness at all, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is, these are the promises for being relentlessly childlike, continually going to the Father with every one of your needs. Pride gets in the way of childlike dependence. It is self-sufficiency and proud uh, a proud attitude that prevents us from asking and seeking and knocking. We're too self-sufficient. Oh, I don't want to bother the Father. Oh, I, 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 can, I can muster this up on my own. Go to Him as a child goes to his Father for the simplest things, bread, fish, meals. Go to Him for everything. This is a call from our Savior to continually go back to the Father. If we don't Go to the Father on a regular basis as child, childlike people. The demands of the Sermon on the Mount will absolutely drown us and overwhelm us. He's calling us to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. It's easy in the Christian life to begin this way, but then after a while to get burned out and, and, and not pray as we ought to pray and as pray as we used to pray. Friends, the Father wants us to go to him. Again and again, I mean, 12 times in chapter 6, the Father is mentioned. The Father, your Father, your Father, your Father in heaven. Jesus is just pointing us to a life lived to the Father, before the Father, and for the Father. And so these are the promises for being relentlessly childlike. And then we come to the last warning. Well, before that, though, he sums up everything he has been teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 12. He says in what's typically called the golden rule, so, in the Greek it's therefore, or so then. He's, he's coming to a conclusion. This is why many believe that this is, this is the close to the main body of the sermon here. So then, here's the conclusion of the matter. He says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you. Now notice he doesn't give the negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. He says, do unto others, do to others what you wish them to do to you. Which throws out a whole realm of possibilities. It's not just the negative. You don't want them to do that to you, right? Well, don't do that. But love says, what can I do? How can I serve? How can I bless? Do to others what you would have them do to you. And notice that he also doesn't say, in order that they might do those things for you. He doesn't say that. He says, for this is the very essence of the law and the prophets. This is the very essence of what it means to please God. This is how God has dealt with us. Many think that Repentance and faith are, 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 are kind of, you know, returning a favor to God. Look at the way God has done to us. What God didn't do to us in order that we would do back to him. He did not give his son in order that, that he would get something out of us. He did it out of pure love. This is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. That he has loved us. Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this is the very essence and substance of the law and the prophets, or to use another synonym, this is the essence of all 
God's truth captured canonically, if you will, up until this point in redemptive history. This is, Jesus could say, this is what, in his day, this is what the entire Bible has been leading you towards. Doing to others what you'd have them do to you. And people have kind of criticized this because, well, why did Jesus not mention any kind of love for God? Well, he did in the previous verses. Love compels you to go to him asking and seeking and knocking. And then he turns it horizontally and says, now, do to others what you'd have them do to you. And now we get to the final warning, the final warning and the final danger And that is the danger of being eternally ruined. The danger of being eternally ruined. We have seen the danger of being hypocritically critical, the danger of being naively undiscerning, the promises for being relentlessly childlike, and now we have here the danger of being eternally ruined. And there's four ways that he mentions that we can be eternally ruined. And that is by traveling on the wrong path, by listening to the wrong voices, by trusting in the wrong thing, and by building on the wrong foundation. And that's where we're going with the remainder of our time this morning. First of all, there's a danger of being eternally ruined by traveling on the wrong path. By traveling on the wrong path. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We run the risk of being eternally ruined if we travel on the wrong path. Every single person in this room is traveling on one of these two paths. It's either the the, the narrow path, which leads to life. It's not the most convenient from an earthly perspective. It's not, definitely not the most convenient from a fleshly perspective, but it leads to life. It's a, it, it's, it's a life of self-denial. It's, it's a life of grace training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It's difficult, but it leads to life. It's worth it. We might lose mothers and fathers or houses or estates for the sake of the gospel, but what we gain in the end infinitely outshines and outweighs everything we could lose in this life because it leads to life. Or you're on the broad path, the wide path. It's wide enough for all your baggage. It's wide enough for you to add to your collection along the way. It's very accommodating. People for the most part, are friendly as long as you're traveling with them and not against them. You'll meet many friends along the way. But the one thing you all have in common is that you're leading towards destruction. You're going towards eternal misery and ruin and eternal devastation. It all begins at the gate. We know that the gate to enter into This path is the gate of faith alone in Christ alone. It's a faith that that moves us to repentance, to cast off beloved sins and beloved tendencies in order that we might receive Christ and the life he offers and promises us. So enter by the narrow gate, he says. Why? For the gate is wide, and, and, and the road is wide that leads to destruction. And notice many go that way. This is the majority of the world right now. And probably at every point in history, the majority of the world. Marching blindly, sinfully, without forgiveness, down, down, down to the path of destruction. That's where the world is headed The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Again, Jesus is not contradicting anything he or his apostles would go on to teach regarding how we receive the kingdom, how we receive forgiveness by faith alone in Christ alone and no works of the law. He is not saying, you know, push through the difficulty and push through all this and by your work you'll receive life. That's not what he's saying here. 
He's saying the narrow path begins with coming to Christ and is traveled by continuously looking to Christ and asking the Father and seeking the Father and knocking at the door of the Father. That's the narrow path. And though it is narrow, yet it is still sweet nonetheless. Though it is restrictive in many ways, it is still rewarding nonetheless. Because if you're, if you're poor in spirit and you recognize it, yours is the kingdom. If you're pure in heart when it's difficult and when everything around you is telling you just fulfill your lusts, gratify your desires, God tells you as you're on the narrow path, blessed are the pure in heart for it is they, they who with their own eyes will see God. Next, there's the danger of not only being eternally ruined by traveling on the wrong path, but there is the danger of being eternally ruined by listening to the wrong voices. Look at 15 to 20. 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, everything about these guys looks like and it perhaps even smells like sheep. I mean, there's a lot of humor, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's the carpenter's talk in the shop there or, or this or your son's hungry and you give him a hammer, you know, or that kind of stuff. But now we get to this and it's like you have false prophets that come to you dressed like sheep. They have wool pull over themselves and they want to pull that wool over your eyes as well and deceive you. But there's an intention. The intention is to deceive. The intention is to mislead. The intention is to lead astray and carry away and destroy. They come to you in sheep's clothing. And what's interesting about a false prophet, if you read, uh, for example, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, these are classic texts on what a false prophet is and what a false prophet does. But in, in, in short... A false prophet will always tell you there's peace and peace when there is no peace between you and God. If you're at peace with God, well, you don't need a false prophet to tell you that. You have Romans 5.1 to tell you that, right? You have the New Testament to tell you that. That if you are justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. False prophets, however, what they were doing in Jeremiah's day and what they did even in the days of Jesus is promise unforgiven people that they were right with God. They promised people on the wide path that they were leading to life, that they were heading towards life. They promised people on the broad path that all was well with them. God loves you just the way you are. Or as one commercial from a very large church in the area used to send out years ago, God is on your side. That's, 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 that's false. If you're not in Christ, if you're in love with your sin and you're enslaved to sin, and there's no freedom from sin, it is not well with your soul. You are on the broad path. You can tell yourself and surround yourself by teachers in, in, in sheep's clothing, wolves in sheep's clothing, but it is not well with your soul because the only safe place of refuge and safety and reconciliation and redemption is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. Beware of false prophets, he says. You will recognize them, verse 16, by their fruits, the things that their lives produce. Their creed, their conduct, all constitute fruit. I mean, it's, it's false prophets don't come to you and say things like, hello, uh, hello, I'm satanic, can I lead you astray? Hello, I'm the devil, uh, I'm one of the devil's ambassadors, can I, can I lead you to hell? It comes in much more subtle ways. Ways that appeal to you and your desire for comfort and your desire for uh, security and wealth and health and prosperity. They give you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. A true prophet, a true teacher, a true shepherd, a true pastor, a true brother or sister will tell you what you need to hear. Will tell you what you need to hear. Not necessarily what you want to hear all the time. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
he goes on and says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You will collect figs off of the weeds? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree, which in the context is the false prophet, bears bad fruit. A love of money. A preoccupation with the things of this world. All of that is bad fruit. Having a bad, unhealthy eyes. We saw last week in chapter 6. Is bad fruit. Storing up treasures on earth. That's bad fruit. While you're neglecting treasures in heaven. And priorities of the kingdom. That's bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. He's speaking in absolutes here. And it's good. Because we need absolutes in this world where everything's relative. Everything's wishy-washy. No, Jesus comes and says, a good tree bears good fruit, can't bear bad fruit. A diseased tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's referring to these false prophets. They will be thrown into the fire. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but their destiny is has nothing to do with the true destiny of the sheep, of the flock of Christ. He says, thus, the second time, verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. By their fruits. Again, fruits that come forth in what they teach and fruits that come forth in the way they live and conduct themselves and preoccupy themselves. All of that is discernible. Thirdly, There's the danger of being eternally ruined, not just by traveling on the wrong path and by listening to the wrong voices, but thirdly, there's the danger of being ruined by trusting in the wrong thing. Look at verses 21 through 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They will be destroyed Because they were trusting in the wrong thing. What were they trusting in? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. These people are trusting in their works in order to stand accepted before Christ on that day. Let me tell you something here that I just want to clear. It's just to clear the air because I think it's necessary. I hear it every now and then. I hear it. And I hear you. When you, hear, when you say it, I hear you. Many of you have said things like, I don't want to be one of those people that, he, that hears the words, I never knew you. This passage is not talking about Christians who might not be Christians. Or this passage is not about, hey, you can follow Jesus all your life, but then you just might hear the words, I never knew you. That's not what he's getting at here. He is saying that those who will stand accepted before the Father will stand accepted before the Father, not on the basis of their works or their righteousness, but on the fact that they did the will of God. And what is the will of God? John 6. That you believe in the one whom the Father has sent. It starts there, and then it's a life devoted to the will of God in all areas and every area of the Christian life. It's not just hearers of the law, hearers of the word. It's those who do the word, having been justified by faith alone. A life that is lived from that point on preoccupied doing the will of God. Not perfectly, but doing the will of God nonetheless. Why? The basis of your acceptance and justification before a holy God is that you have 
taken all the good things you've done and you've taken all the bad things you've done and instead of throwing away the bad things and holding up the good things, you've put them both in the same pile before God and you say, both are absolutely detestable and the one thing I have to stand before you, nothing in my hands do I bring but simply to your cross do I cling. That is the basis. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord. It was as interesting as that this phrase in the Septuagint, Lord, Lord, or Lord God in, 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 the, in the Hebrew or Greek version of the Old Testament, what was, was a, 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 an address of deity. So he's acknowledging that many people will acknowledge his deity on that last day. I mean, he is divine. He is God. He's the judge who you'll stand before. But it's not just acknowledging his deity. Lord, Lord, they will bring you entrance into the kingdom, but a life of doing the will of the Father. Again, this doing of the will of the Father is not your works, per se. It is you, first and foremost, believing in Christ and receiving the free gift of righteousness and forgiveness by faith in his name. That's it. And from that point on, it's a life being devoted to the will of God. If it, it's a life that says, if you justified me not on the basis of my works, then I will spend the rest of my life in good works that reflect a love for your will. Are we clear on that? This is not... So, so if you're a Christian and you're terrified of hearing these words, you need to ask yourself, will you stand before Christ and say, did I not do this and did I not do that? It's unthinkable to the regenerate person. No Christian would ever... If, so I'll put it this way. If you, with Judgment Day honesty, can say right now, I would never appeal to my works when I stand before Christ, then let me tell you something. You need not fear these words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you're trusting in him, trusting in his righteousness, you will hear, on the contrary, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter in the kingdom. It's yours. I'm pleased to give it to you. It was prepared for you for the foundation of the world. Go and, go and take possession of it. This is not what we so often make it. You can ruin yourself by trusting in the wrong thing. These were probably false prophets who, yeah, they did prophesy in Christ's name. Yeah, they did cast out demons and perform exorcisms in his name. Yeah, they did many mighty works that awed and astonished the people. But they didn't know him. Why didn't they know him? Because they're pointing to themselves as the basis of their acceptance before God. Bottom line, up front, that's the matter. And now lastly, as we come to verses 24 through the end, we have seen the danger of being eternally ruined by traveling on the wrong path, by listening to the wrong voices, by trusting in the wrong thing. And lastly, it is possible to be eternally ruined by building on the wrong foundation. By building on the wrong foundation. Look at verse 24. Everyone then, you can just hear he's reached his conclusion. He is summing up the matter. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, whether in that day or today, in the presence of Grace Community Church, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Notice that the reason the house stands is not because of the house itself, but because of the house of what the house is built upon. It's not a matter of, well, I got my materials from Lowe's and you got yours from Harbor Freight. It's by God's grace, I have built everything I have upon the foundation of Christ and listening to him and doing what he says. 
what, what are you built upon right now? Hearing and heeding the words of Christ or not? Because that's, that, that's it. I mean, everything at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is divided into two. There's two paths. You are either on the narrow path that leads to life, or you are on the broad, easy path that leads to destruction. You are either listening to Christ, or you are listening to false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You are either the one who will look to your works as the basis of your acceptance before God on the day of judgment, or you are, the, you, are, you are in the other class, the only other class, saying, I'm looking to your works, Lord Jesus, as to why I should be accepted in your kingdom. I don't deserve it, but I'm laying hold of all your free gift of grace and righteousness. And now there's two foundations, and only two. Only two. The foundation of hearing and heeding the words of Christ or the foundation of just not listening to what he has to say. Notice what he goes on to say. And everyone, verse 26, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Same exact exposure that the first house had but notice the result, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What was the effect? What was the result? Ruin. Ruin. Destruction. Now, many have taken this to believe, taken this to mean that, well, if you do the right things, and if you just hear and heed the words of Christ, and just do what he says, when the trials of life hit you, you're, you're not going to be taken, you're not going to be shaken. That's not true. That's not true. You will have tribulation in this world. You are called to affliction. You are called to degrees of suffering. Some of you more so than other people as appointed by the Father for you. This is talking about the end of time when, to use the language of the prophets, they likened God's wrath on that final day to a storm. Right now, the storm is is brewing, it's collecting, it's, it's forming. I mean, we read in Romans chapter 2 that right now, God's wrath is being stacked, piled up, stored up for that one great day of outpouring in judgment. What this is saying is that all of us will stand before this infinitely terrifying and terrible and awesome and splendid storm of final judgment. But the only ones who will be left standing on that day are those who have heard the words of Christ and have heeded his words. They are not those who performed their, these words perfectly. They are not those who did these, these, these great works that, 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 that impressed Christ or impressed his father. No, they simply heard and they obeyed. They heard what? They heard the call to repent and believe the gospel, and they did it. Did it look perfect? Perfect? No. But they believed. They threw themselves on the mercy and merit of Christ, and they were saved. Those are the only people that will be left standing on the day of judgment. Everyone else will be swept away in the storm of God's wrath that is not just a temporary storm, but an eternal storm over the lake of fire. To use the language of Psalm 11, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This storm of God's wrath perpetually poured out upon the self-sufficient and proud and arrogant who heard the words of Christ but disregarded them, heard the words of Christ but the second they heard them, threw them out the other ear because there's more important things in life. There's more important priorities than listening to the words of the Son of God. Well, Jesus concludes here. Matthew concludes, sorry, in verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished? Look at verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, 
and not as their scribes. The very thing that took their breath away was the authority and power with which he spoke. He spoke with absolutes, but he spoke with authority. He didn't come as the scribes and say, it was written by so-and-so. It was said by so-and-so. He came with his own authority and said, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard it was said to those of old, but I say to you. He just came, he spoke as the word of God, delivered the word of God, and people were astonished at his teaching. Friends, the result should be the same in us as we hear and heed the words of Christ. We should walk away astonished at his authority. We should be astonished at his word. In the same way we talked about earlier about how it's easy to forget that we've been forgiven of our heinous crimes and our cosmic treason against the king of heaven, the king of glory. In the same way that it's easy for us to forget that we've been forgiven, it is easy to not be astonished at his word to us. I mean, the very fact that the infinite God who dwells in unapproachable light has condescended and humbled himself to the degree that he gave us his own word in the language of men. The words of God in the words of men. Words that we can understand. Analogies that we can laugh at. Stories that can make us cry. Stories that can grip our hearts. We ought to be astonished at his authority and astonished at his word. And so I would encourage you to pray to ask, to seek, to knock for all the grace that you need to carry out the demands of the Sermon on the Mount and to pray and to seek and to ask and to knock that you would be continually, like a child, just astonished as these crowds are at our Savior's word. It's authority, it's clarity, it's sufficiency, it's beauty.